Okay, well, I go ahead. Uh, yeah, yes, yeah. Okay, uh, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Um, Mick is my name, uh, um, and I'm an alcoholic. Um, I don't know, I did a chair here, I don't know, it was a year or six months ago, probably, I don't know, you know. And um, so uh, I never refused when I'm asked, like, you know, uh, there, anyway, Tucker asked me, and he, uh, we're stuck for someone, so so I, here I am. So it's great to be here. And uh, I, I owe I owed uh, everything to 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 AA, yeah. Um, I I from the time I started drinking, it did something to me. It was like nectar, nectar. I I I, I, I never had anything spiritual, but that was the nearest thing to it. And I I just didn't stop. And my friends stopped. They went for a drink. I went for a drink and. It wasn't because of trauma. It wasn't because of any underlying issue for me. It was just I completely loved it. Oh, I had a lot of trauma, and I drank on the trauma, and I had issues, self-esteem, the whole like that. But that's not why I drank. And when I drank, um, I get into this morbid thinking and saw myself as a victim of circumstances. A victim, and from a very young age, my father was a decent man. He was a teetotaler, in the sense that he he stopped drinking. I think it was ten of us or something, eight or nine, when we were children. He stopped drinking. He was a, a big man, and I had younger brothers. So he said to me, when I was sixteen, either stop drinking or leave the house. Of course, I did. I left the house, and I lived on the streets. And in bus stations, I'd had an apprenticeship. But I'd have my clothes in the bus. You wouldn't tell anybody in those days that you were on the street, you'd sneak into work. And I remember I'd be working late and the fellow give you a lift home, but you couldn't tell him that that you weren't living at home. So I'd sleep in cars and and, and every penny I got, I drank. And any girlfriend I met, because I was apprenticed, I didn't have that much money. But I spent her money on the drink. And of course, the relationships didn't last. So my life was just cyclical. I played a bit of music. I qualified as an electrician when I was 20. And I hadn't a clue. In substations, 38 could be stations. And I still, but anyway, uh, they asked me to leave because, again, it wasn't very safe to be in substation intoxicated. So then uh, I sort of became an industrial hobo, traveling around the sites, I worked in Saudi Arabia, worked in the big industrial sites, and you were functioning. You got your accommodation paid, and you got your and your weekly wage. Every, every penny went on the go. It was like that. Relationships. I'd go into a town, I'd have a relationship and then uh, play a bit of music and you'd be kind of popular, get the music going in the pub. After about a couple of months, someone got a belt at the banjo or someone got a belt and didn't pay the digs money. And it was like that. It seemed to be, this is a great, exciting life, but it became after a while really, really boring. I couldn't function anymore. Somewhere along the way, I, I remember going to a doctor and uh, I was 
living in a caravan and I was very shaky from 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 alcohol. I says, I think you're suffering from claustrophobia living in that caravan. So he gave me Valium. That was in the 70s. It wasn't much known about it. So Valium and rum and uh, uh, Guinness, a good connection, good concoction. And then I was with this fella from Kerry, and I was going out to get my lunch. And he said, why are you going to get lunch? You don't need to eat when you're drinking Guinness. Oh, I said, that's good. So between the Valium and the Guinness and the rum, I'm working seven days a week. Um, my life became very unmanageable. I started seeing things and connecting black and white, positive and negatives. I couldn't function. So my brother was in a monastery in Tipperary, so I went to see him. At that time in the early 70s, if, if you had mental problems, you went to see a priest, you know. So I, I went to see him, and, and this, this priest said to me, Father Albert, he said, you need psychoanalysis. Psychoanalysis. I never heard of the word before. He says, I go myself. And I said to him, why do you go, uh, Father? Well, he says, I have problems with sex. I was kind of innocent. And how a priest could have problems with sex, I didn't know. I, you know. But anyway, I start going to this psychoanalyst. He was an American, a man called... Um, Dick Cameron he was a good guy he was a conscientious objector to the Korean War and he did two years in prison for that and he became a psychoanalyst and I, 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 I couldn't function at this time I was panic attacks because I there was nothing known about withdrawals from Valium and, and alcohol as such. And uh, so I went out to him and for the first six months, I was in a pretty bad state, just short of hallucinating and hearing voices. But whatever about that, I learned, I learned a lot from him. He was a good, kind man and helped me through this crazy mind. And eventually then, of course, my confidence came back and I started thinking. By the way, this man was psychoanalyzed by a man who was psychoanalyzed by Sigmund Freud. So I often say I was psychoanalyzed by a man who was psychoanalyzed by a man. But after a while, um, I got my confidence back and started drinking. And I used to borrow money from him. It was kind of, so I reckon I was the only guy in Ireland who was getting paid by the psychiatrist to go and see him, you know. But I have to say, I, I, I paid him back. So my life was like that in and out. But I planted some seed or something. I couldn't continue drinking till, till I couldn't drink anymore. And I said, I, I went to Arabia for a year to, to, to try and stop. I said, I make a few bob. And, uh, and I was there six weeks. I was very sick. I said, oh, my God, this mental health issue was coming back to me. Unde undefinable kind of fear, unknown fear, uh, choking, claustrophobic, hypochondriac. I went to the, see this Egyptian doctor and I said to him, tell them all about my symptoms. And he said, are you an alcoholic? I said, how could it be an alcoholic? I haven't had a drink for six months. But anyway, that didn't work. I came home with the money and I spent the money. 
Then I went to live in an island of Ireland, the Arden, uh, in, in Ishir, a little island, and I had my own ass supplied, uh, and I got a job doing the electrics in the house, in the houses. But the ass tried to kill me, I believe. I was driving a drunk. There was no policeman on the island, drunk driving an ass and car, yeah. And I went over the side and put the main arteries in my ankle. I nearly had to be taken off a helicopter. Then I went back and I fell into the sea, all that kind of stuff. I was very fearful. So my life was like that. Then eventually I contacted a brother of mine in 1979. And I said, listen, I think I'm an alcoholic. He said, Jesus Christ, says he, I've known her an alcoholic for years. I said, why didn't you tell me? And you wouldn't tell me. So I went in for treatment. And it was great because they said, it's not your fault you're an alcoholic. I said, that's great. And, you know, really, anything that you did wrong, it's because you're an alcoholic. I said, this is, this is, yeah, yeah. And the family went up and they said, they said, this guy is, uh, he has a, he has an illness, he has a disease. He's, he's not a bad person. So, I don't know whether they believed it. I certainly didn't, but I liked the Lucas Aid and the cigarettes and all they were coming up and they were very much playing the victim and things like that. Somehow. There was AA meetings and the lads used to come in. This collection of characters used to come in. Red Paddy. The Red Messer. Paddy the Rose. The Wicked Chicken Carpet Jack. Coffin Jack. And they all had the wildest of stories. It wasn't boring. I wasn't one of them. I have mental health crazy problems, which I can't discuss with anybody. And I'm drinking as self-medication, but not just for that. It wasn't just for the medication or the sedation. It was the high. It was the escape from the reality of life. I had trauma, I had issues like we all do, some do, some don't. Wasn't a perfect upbringing, this, this that happened, but the drink, not, it wasn't just sedation or self-medication, it was that buzz, that oi, that transcendence, that freedom to go anywhere in my mind. And then wake up the dreadful hangovers and then drink again and swear, listen, I'm going to do myself in tonight so I won't wake up. And then I drink more, but then I'd wake up. And that was like that. But how am I going to... It's one thing stopping drinking. I'm not going to be able to reach for the stars. Not that I reach for the stars. In my mind, I'm not going to be... I don't want to be a mundane, socialised person average person doing mundane things. I want to escape from that. I don't want to be part of it. I didn't want to be part of my family. I fantasize running away. I don't fit in. But I fitted in with these guys. I listened to their stories, the bizarre stories, the silent stories, the sad stories. And that's haunting of the mind went away when I was at the meetings. 
I think in the treatment centre, they start talking about the steps. And this, this woman, Mary Bolton was her name, and she she, she, she had a horrendous story as, as an alcoholic. She was from a, a high society family, and uh, she went down in the world. But she was very spiritual. I don't say spiritual in any religious way. She just felt good in her company. And she said, come on, you're a hopeless case, so we do a fifth step with you. So we did a fifth step, and um, only about three or four minutes, and something happened, yeah. Yeah, something something happened for me. Most, most, most uh, it's indescribable what happened. It was just a, a moment, just for a moment, uh, a piece. And the second step says, came to believe a power grave would restore us to sanity, restore. So just for that moment, I felt restored. I was sane at one moment. One time when I was beyond care, when I was beyond a child, that essence that we all have by experience, just, just to kind of, when the inner conflict, the mental dissonance, as psychologists call it, the, the dialect, the confusion that was going on, when that stopped, I suddenly felt connected and everything seemed simple. And I said, how am I going to stay this way? Mary said, yeah, well, that's only a glimpse, but you're far from being a saint. You have to be perfect to have that feeling. It was more than a feeling. And one thing about it, it wasn't an ego thing, but people would say, it's nice talking to you. It's a nice feeling around you. Right? And I had never experienced that before. Now, I left the treatment centre and then it went. Then I'd meet an alcoholic on the street and I'd come back. Then I'd go to a meeting and I'd come back. And then I'd go away and then I'd come back. And then I said, I wished I never had that experience because I tried to go drinking. And this experience would come in. It was as if the desire... I felt unable to drink with this insight I got. I didn't want to do this, and I realized I didn't like my job. I was the electrician, it was boring, I didn't make money on society. After a strange series of events, I ended up walking through Trinity College. I lived beside Trinity College in Dublin, and which it didn't go, it wasn't for us. I lived with less than 100 yards, and you didn't venture in. So this day I ventured in. I was about, as I said, six months old or something, and I met this lady, she was a fiddler. I hadn't seen her for a while. And, oh, she says, what are you doing in this college of knowledge? I said, I'm just going for a walk. What are you doing? She said, I teach here. I said, I'd love to, I'd love to, I'd love to study here. She says, well, she come up to my office. So she brought me up to my office, her office. She says, yeah, she can start next year in my, because I was over, whatever, 25 or 6. But I said, no, <coughs> Jesus Christ, I was 31. I was 31, two, two. Come on, you can start, but you need another faculty, another subject. I couldn't even spell faculty. I wasn't bad, but... So she brought me up to see this professor, professor of classical civilizations. Says he, can you speak Latin? No, I said, but well, I was in the altar, boys. 
He says, yeah. So I was able to do it then pre Very good. And I told him I was in Arabia, and I was in a place in Arabia called the Rubal Kali Desert. And do you know any Arabic? I said, Muhammad, Rasulullah, come into my faculty. So there was like sociology and classical civilizations. I said, what the fuck? You know, trying to explain. I, I, I just couldn't believe, but it was like a dream come true. And then I felt in AA, said, how are you going to college for the next five years? Where are you going to get the money? I says, I never thought of that now. It's a very good question. So at the time, there was an art gallery starting up, Temple Bar. Uh, the government gave the artists money. So a friend of mine, he was in fellowship, he says, can you do all the electrics? I said, of course. So I got all the electrical work for the five years. I was studying. And that paid. And after I did a year of classical civilizations, I learned to spell it. I learned all about Aristophanes and Euripides and Aeschylus and Sophocles and Herodotus and Thucydides. I just have to learn them off like the catechism and learn big passages. That's how we were taught. What is it? an ideology set of ideas current in society that does not necessarily relate? Blah, blah, blah. I didn't understand, but I could learn them off. And I got through. After a year, I felt sharp. And I decided, hold on a second. I'd be like a lighthouse in the Bobber Valley with a classical civilization. So I went into social work and I went into social work. And then in 1983, I qualified as a social worker and I got a job in the center of the city during the huge um, heroin epidemic and the AIDS epidemic. And I worked with young men and women I say young men and women under 20 who are dying, like working with elderly people. Every week, some young person died. It was quite horrific. But between the AA, the program, the knowledge and the freedom, I felt like the square peg, the round peg in the round hole. And I connected with these young people. And I was accompanied, many of them, as they passed away. And I still remember some of the most, most um, moving experiences of watching these young people demise. Like one guy said to me, Mick, he says, that white light keeps visiting me. And I said, Johnny, what, what white light are you talking about? And he said, Mick, you're only interested in the white light. I want the white light to fuck off. That's how real it was. I was blessed then to, I met this lady and we had a daughter. And I was at the 